Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which you know we are slowly walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. And we have come to the very end of Canto 28 of Inferno. This is a passage that is quite difficult. I'm going to give you a heads up on this. We are going to look at this passage in a non-linear fashion, and I'm going to pull it to a million <laughs> pieces because it is such a crucial passage to understanding the work of comedy itself. Let me remind you where we are. We are in the eighth circle of fraud. So of the nine circles of hell, we are in the eighth, thus toward the bottom of hell, and we are in the ninth of the pouches, the evil pouches, the malabolja that make up this giant circle of fraud, the largest single piece of real estate in all of comedy. These sub-pouches of fraud have been various and remarkable for many reasons. We've seen demons throwing people into pitch. We've seen popes upside down in hulls. We've seen fortune tellers with their heads turned backward. And in this pit, we have seen the schismatics and those people who throw stumbling blocks, or to use the theological word in Dante's say, scandal in front of the faithful. We have come into a very crowded pit full of all different kinds of figures, Muhammad, his son-in-law Ali, various Italian figures from Dante's own day, some reference, some scene. Curio from the Roman Civil War, even the guy who started the big Florentine Civil War, or at least was reputed to have started it. So we've come to the last of the figures in this crowded pit. Let me just say, we've been with this figure all along. So here it is, my English translation of the passage at lines 112 through 142, the end of Canto 28. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. It goes to the same place. You can read along there, and you can even drop a comment, which would be fabulous, about this episode. So without any more wind-up to it, here's the passage. I stuck around to watch the company, and I saw something which made me afraid to even mention it without further proof. Even so, what bucks me up is conscience, the good compatriot that makes a man brave under the armor of his own truly felt purity. Honestly, I saw, and I still seem to see, a torso without a head coming along just like the others in that sad sack crowd. He held his uncoupled head by its hair, swinging it from his hand like a lantern. The head took one look at us and said, Oh, me. He had made a lamp out of himself so that there were two in one and one in two. How could this be? Only he who orders it knows. When this one had gotten right up to the foot of the bridge, he raised his arm, carrying the whole head high, to make his words unmistakable, which were, Now look at my deadly pain, you there breathing away as you gawk at the dead. See if any torment 
is as great as mine, so that you may carry back news of me. Know that I am Bertrand de Bourne, who gave the young king the bad counsel. I led the father and son into open rebellion with each other. Ahitophel did no more to Absalom and David with his wicked nudging. Since I divided otherwise joined persons, I carry my own brain divided, alas, from its origin point on this torso. This is how the contrapasso is made manifest in me. There is a dramatic passage. A figure coming along, swinging his head like a lantern, a body walking headless, surely the start of ever so many horror stories, ever so many spooky nightmares this guy carrying his own head which we assume somehow gets sewn back on his body or healed back on his body by the time he comes all the way around the pit and then it's taken off again by that demon waiting to hack them apart here's what i'd like to do in this episode i'd like to talk about who bertrand de born is i'd like to identify the young king so two different sections about the personages inside this passage Then I'd like to look at two biblical quotations that exist inside this passage. I'd like to look at two other times in which Dante mentions this very figure, Bertrand de Born, and then I'd like to talk about a few interpretive problems. (laughs) I'll say a few, quite a few interpretive problems. Let's get started. First, who was Bertrand de Born? Bertrand de Born was a troubadour poet from the south of France. He was from Languedoc. He was an Occitan poet, that is, the people who spoke Provençal, who used Oc instead of we for yes. He was born sometime after 1140. Remember, records are really bad unless you're royalty. And we know he's dead by 1215 because there's a receipt for his tomb recorded in that year or for the maintenance of his tomb. So we know he's dead by that point, but we don't actually know exactly when he's dead. Okay, who is he? He is the Lord of Hautefort, that we would say in English, Hautefort, Hautefort in Perigord, way down in the south of France. He is the lord of a large and legendary estate. Hautefort is indeed in Perigord, but it sits right on the border of Limousin, uh, that is Limousine, Limousin, and Perigord, right there on the border. And because it's on the border between the two, it is inevitable that this lord of this manor house would become involved in the land and succession battles of the English and French crowns. After all, Limousin, right there to the side of him, is part of the seat of power of Henry II of England, or Henry Plantagenet, the husband of Eleanor of Aquitaine. This is the beginning of the great battles for control of France. Remember, if the scales had just 
tipped slightly in other ways, the English crown would also be the crown of France. I always say that the English are not over this, even to this day, because down in the Dordogne and in Perigord, they appear to be buying up France one house <laughs> at a time, one vacation property at a time. So they're still trying to get Eleanor's dowry back at this point. Anyway, this is the whole beginning of those troubles with Henry Plantagenet, the wars with the French, and Bertrand de Bourne was not only the lord of this manor house, he was a poet. And this is what is so crucial. Bertrand de Bourne wrote love poetry, as the troubadours did. He sought out poetry about women, about love. This was the early days of the very poetry that will become Dante's own poetry. Bertrand de Bourne also was incredibly well known for his battle poetry, his poetry celebrating various battles, the romance, heroship, chivalry, and you know ultimately that love and chivalry will become bound up in romance, the great French form that will make its way out of the Middle Ages and even into the Renaissance in such places as Shakespeare's The Tempest. Bertrand de Bourne is one of these poets at the beginning of a line of poetry that could also include Dante. Dante begins his life as a love poet, writing poetry to Beatrice, the new life. It is, after all, Dante's exploration of his love, and many of Dante's early songs and works our love poetry. And given that Dante took place in the battles of central Italy, it's not out of place to think, well, perhaps, that Dante could have become a battle poet too. It is the standard move of the troubadour to move from love poetry to battle poetry. That's who Bertrand de Bourne is, a forerunner of the what do I want to say, the vulgar style, we would say the common language style that Dante practices, a forerunner of the love poetry Dante practices, a forerunner of the very kind of poetry that Dante himself begins to write in his career. The second historical personage mentioned here is the young king to whom Bertrand de Bourne gave bad counsel. Well, we're back to that Henry Plantagenet problem. Henry Plantagenet and Eleanor of Aquitaine had a son, their first son, Henry, who was named after his father. He was engaged to Margaret of France, the daughter of King Louis VII at the young age. <laughs> age of five. Wow, was that a precocious thing? Margaret was about two when they were engaged. If this alliance had produced an heir, and if the young King Henry had in fact come to the throne and ruled and produced an heir, the entire history of England and France would be much different. Henry Plantagenet, Henry II, the father, got this brilliant idea that he should have his son crowned king of England before his own death. He had this brainy idea to get Henry already made royalty, already in fact made king of England before his own father's death, the 
only king since the Norman Conquest for whom this has happened. Henry Plantagenet, Henry II, actually got a papal bull from Pope Alexander III to make this happen, to make sure that Henry could be crowned before his father's death. He was crowned twice. On the 14th of June, 1170, he was crowned at Westminster. There were several problems involved here. One, he was quite young. <laughs> he was about ooh, 14, 15. And two, Margaret of France, his betrothed, was not with him and was not crowned. Thus, this was a slap at the French. They did it again. At the, on the 27th of August, 1172, two years later, this time Margaret was there, and they were both crowned at Winchester Cathedral. But young Henry is impatient. His father is not letting him rule. He desperately wants to be the king of England and wants to take over the reins of power. Old Henry Plantagenet, really actually not all that old, old Henry Plantagenet, decides that his son is basically there as a kind of pro forma, not actually to rule. Henry himself becomes uh, enraged at this. Henry the Younger becomes enraged at this. He foments a revolt in 1173 against his father. A sort of civil war breaks out. In fact, Henry the Younger goes to France around where Bertrand de Born is, and he goes on basically a rampage, taking all kinds of loot from monasteries and various castles around there. He actually gets sick in the middle of these campaigns and dies. His father, Henry Plantagenet, Henry II, outlives him by six years, and when Henry II dies, his second son, Richard the Lionhearted, is crowned Richard I of England, thereby bringing to the end at least the first bit of the English-French troubles. What is Bertrand's place in all of this? Bertrand de Born wrote poetry that was, oh, what do I want to say, uh, was laudatory toward the young King Henry. And especially after the young king died, Bertrand de Born wrote poetry that celebrated the young king and his struggles against his, well, as Bertrand would have it, his authoritarian, overbearing father. Whether Bertrand de Born did more than that is unknown. It is not historically certain that Bertrand de Born took part in the revolt of 1173 to 1174. It is not clear that he actually counseled the young king in any way other than to write poetry that celebrated the young king. And that might be enough for Dante, because it's poetry with a political purpose. In fact, it's poetry that foments civil war. And you see where we are. Remember the opening of this canto, all those bodies hacked apart in all those various wars, Trojan, Roman, all those various wars at the front of this canto, we have been talking about what war does to the body all along. And here we come at the very end with a poet with his head cut off, a poet who celebrated war and maybe even encouraged on civil strife, even if he didn't personally take part in 
in it. All right, let's turn from this historical matter away from the interpretation of the passage and Bertrand's place in it and just talk about a couple biblical citations. Bertrand says, I led the father and son, that is Henry and his son, the young king, into open rebellion with each other. Ahitophel, or Ahitophel, depending on how you want to pronounce it, did no more to Absalom and David with his wicked nushing. Ahitophel was a counselor of Absalom, David's son, and nudged Absalom to open rebellion with his father, King David. You can read this story in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 17. You may know the end of this story. Absalom retreats at a final battle. His hair gets caught in a tree. He gets hung up in the tree by his long flowing locks. He is then darted by one of David's commanders and finally run through and killed. It is at this moment that King David gives his famous lament over his son's body, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died for thee. One of the most moving moments in the entire chronicle of the establishment of the Israelite kingdoms. Truly a moment in the text in which the pathos is foregrounded even above the political discourse. Could we see that in this passage? Maybe. Let's talk about the other biblical citation. Bernard holds his head up toward the bridge where the pilgrim and Virgil are standing so that the head's words can be unmistakable. And when the head starts to speak, it says, now look at my deadly pain. You there breathing away as you gawk at the dead. This is one of the first moments in which someone has commented on the fact that the pilgrim is breathing, that he is actually (laughs) respirating as he's standing there in the flesh. If you remember, Virgil has told them all that Virgil is the one dead and the pilgrim is still alive taking this tour of hell to see the full scope of things and suddenly this bit about breathing comes up from Bertrand. I think it's not a casual gesture in the text. Why? Because poetry can lead to civil strife and it's not too late for Dante but that's getting on toward the interpretation so let's just look at the next line that Bertrand says he says see if any torment is as great as mine he's quoting the Old Testament or the Tanakh book Lamentations chapter 1 verse 12 the verse is see if there is any sorrow like unto my sorrow in its original location it is about watching Jerusalem be destroyed and the sadness and laments that come from that. However, by Dante's day, this passage, see if there's any sorrow like unto my sorrow, is firmly established as a Christological reference. It is said of Jesus, there are endless motets 
even in Dante's day, in which this line is sung by Jesus on the cross. There are endless references to this line from Lamentations 1.12 to Jesus' own suffering on the cross. Here, we have Bertrand parodying Christ. Any medieval would hear this. Well, there is one torment worse than yours. It's Christ's on the cross. Bertrand is so blasphemous right here. It is almost unbelievable. I know it's very hard for you to hear this now in the modern era. Any medieval reader would see it and immediately think, well, there is one torment at least worse than yours. It's Jesus on the cross in which he bears the sins of the world. Bertrand, you jerk, how dare you be this blasphemous? It's Also, and we should note this, a rare Christological reference in Inferno. There have been almost no references to Christ except some bits on the harrowing of hell. You notice how Inferno is so, to use a loaded word, godless, how few times God comes up. But right here, I would argue this is a direct reference to Christ on the cross, a direct reference here at the end of the passage of the schismatics, as if Christ's unifying work on the cross is being torn apart by humans. It just can't be overstated. It's right here, blasphemously in Bertrand's mouth, but we are supposed to see it yelling at us. Remember, there was a way to unify humankind. Now, listen, I'm not arguing that you all have to go out and convert. I'm saying what I think the text is up to. And I think at the end of a passage about people who split things apart, we have this parodic reference to the death of Christ put blasphemously in the mouth of another poet who celebrates love in the same ways Dante did, in the common tongue as Dante did, and who moved from that into battle poetry, which Dante could get very close to if he wasn't careful. After all, he has already yelled out to Mosca, death to your kin. Twice, Dante himself refers to Bertrand de Born elsewhere in his works. In the De Vulgari Eloquentia, or to put it commonly on the eloquence of the common tongue, Dante in Book 2, Chapter 2, Line 8, cites Bertrand de Born as someone whose war poetry is beautifully fashioned in the common tongue, in this case, in Provençal. Then, in the Convivio, or the Banquet, in Book 4, Chapter 11, Line 14, Dante again mentions Bertrand de Born. This time, he's listed amongst others who are being lauded for their liberality, their generosity, for their open spirit. What happened that Bertrand de Born got two positive references from Dante? Notice Dante's involvement with Provençal poetry. Two very laudatory references from Dante and suddenly ends up way down here in the pits of hell. I think it all has to do with poetry. It starts, I stuck around to watch the company and I saw something which made me afraid to to even mention it 
without further proof. Even so, what bucks me up is conscience. The veracity problem. Why is it here? Why is this so unbelievable that somebody's walking along holding their head? I mean, is this any more unbelievable than people living in burning tombs? Is this any more unbelievable than people turned into trees? Is this any more unbelievable than other things that we have already seen in hell? It is quite bloody and quite gross. But why here suddenly to foreground the veracity problem of the poetry? Well, you know what I'm going to say. It has to do with poetry itself. Because the next line is, honestly, I saw and I still seem to see. So the poet is right there. The poet is telling us at my desk as I'm writing this, I still seem to see this image. Now, we surely do not believe that Dante actually saw Bertrand de Born walking around hell holding his head. But that the veracity problem is foregrounded here brings forward the problem of the proof of the reality claims of poetry. It brings up the whole question of what poetry does. And if Dante is trying to claim he's an eyewitness to something, then he is treading a very dangerous ground of fraud. And also, he is moving far away from troubadour poetry about love and chivalry and into some reality claims about the nature of the soul. Or... Well, let me put it another way. Is the veracity problem here at the coming of Bertrand de Born because of Dante's previous praise for Bertrand? Having praised him in two other works, is there a way in which the poet is hedging his bets a bit and pulling back and saying, well, uh, here's a figure I used to like, and if you know anything else I wrote, uh, you know, I used to kind of like this guy, but uh, now uh, not so much. And I put him down here in hell. In fact, he's not just here, he's been in the canto all along. In this passage that we read, Bertrand's poetry is not mentioned. But you know what? It's been in this canto from almost the very beginning. Remember that opening bit about could all the wounded troops first from Apulia land laid low by war who grieved for their lost blood shed by the Trojans? Remember this bit and the rings off the corpses fighting together, the heaps of bones and all of the war dead at the beginning? That's a direct allusion to one of Bertrand de Born's own poems. In fact, the poem on the death of Henry the Young King. It's not a direct quote from that poem, but the structure of the opening lines of this canto are distinctly reminiscent of Bertrand's poetry. And in fact, Bertrand appears elsewhere in the canto. At line 37, there's that discussion of a devil stands behind us or a devil is posted or stationed behind us. That word for stationed or posted is a Provençal word. In fact, there are several Provençal words inside this canto. 
that word can actually be found in Bertrand's poetry. There's some other words in the poem itself that are not so easily traceable. For example, uh, the bit in our passage right here, even so what bucks me up is conscience, the good compatriot that makes a man brave under the armor of his own truly felt purity. That word for armor, that's another Provencal word. I couldn't actually trace it to Bertrand de Born's poetry, but I can tell you it's a Provencal borrowing sitting right there in the text. Bertrand has been in this canto from the beginning. We've been being set up for him. And so that his poetry is not foregrounded in this passage, it doesn't matter. It's been in the canto from the very get-go. Suddenly, there comes the man who we've been slyly referring to all along. What is it about Bertrand Bourne that causes Dante to go from lauding him in two different works to suddenly putting him down, way down, in hell itself, and in fact letting his war poetry and Provencal language infect, <laughs> infect? Okay, infuse this canto. I'm going to actually hold that because I think we have to get through the opening bits of Canto 29. But I think there's a way in which Dante is coming to understand that poetry itself can be complicit in civil war and that poetry itself can foment unrest. And the character development here in this pit is one in which the pilgrim will move from a position of fomenting the very schisms that are, um, what am I going to say, condemned inside this pit to a place where he actually lets go of the rage. And that's in the next passage. So I have to wait for that. But I just think that Bertrand, as a troubadour poet of love poetry, and for the troubadours, that would always be sexual love, sexual love poetry and chivalric battle poetry, the kind of poet that Dante could become. Dante himself is on the verge of becoming just this kind of schismatic poet. Here we see finally the cost of using your words to foment discontent, even if you don't intend to, even if you are a very accomplished poet, as Bertrand de Born was, even a very accomplished, revolutionary poet who changed the way love is written about across Western culture. That's what the troubadours did. <laughs> There's direct line. This is insane. There's a direct line from the troubadours to romance novels in the grocery store. This is the whole move across the West for love to become the dominant thematic, human love to become the dominant thematic of literature. This is revolutionary stuff, but yet it hides a very dire and difficult truth. It can foment discontent and civil unrest, and it can lead to cut up bodies, the body in pain, born not just out of the sword, but out of poetry. End of the passage, Bertrand de Born 
does the famous bit that is now for Dantistas the touchstone practically of Inferno. And I didn't even translate the word. I left it exactly as Dante uses it because I can't think of a great translation for it. So we want to talk about this. These are the last four lines of the passage. Since I divided otherwise joined persons, Bertrand said, I carry my own brain. And that is the word he uses, brain, divided alas from its origin point on this torso. This is how the contrapasso is made manifest in me. Contrapasso. It's from two Latin words, contra, meaning in return, and Pati, to suffer, to suffer in return, to suffer in like manner. Many Dantistas translate this as retributive justice. What do I mean by that? I mean the lex talionis from Torah, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, the contrapasso, to suffer the same thing in return. This is the only time this term is ever mentioned in comedy. Before we get to more of what it means, let's just ask a question that is way settled by Dantistas, but that doesn't mean we can't ask it. When Bertrand Bourne says that his head is divided off his body, and so the contrapasso, the retributive justice, the ability to suffer what I caused others to suffer, or to suffer in the same way I made others suffer, or to suffer something that looks like my sin, is Bertrand talking about himself. So the contrapasso is related directly to Bertrand de Born. Well, yeah, of course he is. I mean, who else is he talking about? This is how the contrapasso is made manifest in me. Okay, fair enough. Is he then talking about the others in this pit? Can we generalize contrapasso out to the others? So when we look at Muhammad, when we look at Ali, when we look at Pierre da Medicina, when we look at these other figures, Curio in this pit and Mosca, are they also suffering contrapasso? And if so, this then gives us leave to interpret the way that they're cut up as symbolic of their own schismatic ways or their own scandal-mongering. So something about the way they are cut is symbolic of the very thing they're guilty of. Okay, fair enough. Maybe it refers to the whole pit. Or does it refer to all of Inferno? This is where all Dantistas agree. Bertrand de Born lines out the rationale for the punishments of hell. They take this one instance of contrapasso and they say, oh, across the landscape of hell, those people are punished in ways that are like unto their own sin, that are somehow connected to their own guilt. They suffer an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I'm going to complicate this in a moment, and I'm going to tell you that I think it's tougher than that. Then there's a fourth question here. If we can push this out and say, oh, this is the way that justice works across all of hell, contrapasso, is that true of all of comedy? 
Once we get up to Purgatorio, you're going to find out that Contrapasso does work. The word is never mentioned. It comes close to being mentioned in one spot in Purgatory, but the word itself is never used. You're going to find out, for example, that the envious have their eyes sewn shut, or the proud are walking along bent over under heavy rocks. Clearly, there is a Contrapasso going on here. When we get up to Paradiso, is there a Contrapasso? Well, they're not suffering in paradise, so they can't be suffering in return. But is there a way their station is likened to their good works? Then it's not contrapasso, but it is still in the spirit of contrapasso. This is a large question. Let me rephrase it one more time just to show you hear it. Is contrapasso to be limited to Bertrand de Born himself? Is it to be limited to this pit? Is it to be limited to Inferno as a whole? Or is it somehow a thematic unifying device for all of comedy? Almost all Dantistas come out with Inferno, at least, if not all of comedy. But I just want to say the answer may not be that easy. The way the contrapasso works out in Inferno is difficult. There seem to be two different types of contrapasso punishments. There are actual contrapasso punishments. For example, Fadonata is accused of the Epicurean heresy in which he denies the resurrection of the body, and so he must spend the rest of eternity in an open tomb, like Christ's resurrection, that is on fire. Therefore, it is contrapasso. He denied the resurrection. He's stuck in a burning tomb with the lid off, like Jesus's own tomb, Pretty safe to say that's pretty one-for-one type of contrapasso. The people who have been violent against others or the property of others, they are sunk in a boiling river of blood. Pretty one-to-one. They spilled a lot of blood, so they're sunk in boiling blood. How this actually relates to pillaging property and down to highway robbers is a little more difficult. Do you see how difficult that gets? You can't quite make the contrapasso out of that, but it's close enough and so we kind of grant it leeway that the lustful are riding on wild winds okay fair enough that the gluttons are lying down in muck and mire in the stuff that happens after you eat okay fair enough but then there are other punishments that don't seem to have a contrapasso. And this is what we could call the second order of contrapasso. While there are actual contrapasso punishments, there seem also to be metaphoric contrapasso punishments. Let me give you a couple examples of that. If we go back up to the avaricious, the hoarders and the wasters, rolling those boulders around, we can't really say that that is a direct reflection on their avaricious nature. When we get up in purgatory, 
the avaricious are going to be stretched out face down on the ground, you know, spread eagle flat face down on the ground so that they couldn't possibly collect anything. I mean, that's that's clearer that the punishment fits the problem. But with rolling those boulders around, I don't know. Again, it seems to fall into what I am calling the metaphoric contrapasso. I could come up with all kinds of rationale that worldly goods are big boulders, that they weigh you down, that you have to roll all your goods in front of you. Well, that might work for the hoarders. How does that work for the wasters? Not clear. The metaphoric contrapassos get more difficult. Let's go back to the suicides and Pierre de la Vigne. He's going to go at the resurrection, if you remember, and retrieve his body that he left behind in suicide he's going to hang it on the tree that he's become. There's a, the one-for-one contrapasso. You chose to disregard and <laughs> you chose to throw out your body in suicide and so you were forced to catch it in the resurrection, retrieve it and it's just going to hang there like dead flesh for the rest of eternity on the tree. But what about the tree? The tree itself, how is that contrapasso? How is being a suicide and then turning into a tree, a nasty old gnarled tree, but a tree in hell. How is that contrapasso? Now, we can come up with all kinds of reasons, and this is why we call it metaphoric contrapasso. We could say, for example, that they denied their humanity, and thus they lowered themselves off the human scale and onto the vegetative scale by denying their own humanity in suicide. Uh, Maybe. How does that work with the guys who squandered their own property, the ones chased by the rabid-like dogs through the underbrush. How is there a contrapasso there? Is it because they were rabid in the way they squandered their own goods? Again, I'm having to come up with metaphoric alignments for the contrapasso. And I don't want to tell you about everything, but I want to tell you about something. Ahead of us is the ninth circle of hell, and we will discover it is an ice sheet. And while there may be a couple souls down there who are engaged in a very direct contrapasso punishment, it's hard to see how these final deepest souls who are all guilty of treachery. It's hard to see how frozen in an ice sheet reflects them, except maybe metaphorically. Maybe we could say their hearts are frozen. Their souls are frozen. They're stone cold bad people. Maybe. But again, sometimes it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's actual direct contrapasso. And sometimes it's metaphoric. And when it gets to metaphoric contrapasso, That's when we have to kind of start thinking, wait a minute, how does that work? Think about the seducers and the pimps. They're just walking around in circles in the first of the evil pouches being whipped by black demons. How is that a contrapasso? Is it that they goaded others onto action and now they're being goaded on? It doesn't seem a direct one-to-one correspondence. It seems more, again, a metaphoric understanding of the contrapasso. This term is not as easy as it appears. It is absolutely crucial to Dante criticism and Every Dantista will nod in agreement that contrapasso is the basic framework of how comedy works. And Bertrand de Born, a poet, need I, need I draw this out for you? A poet 
brings up the basic structure of comedy. And yet, at the same time, it's more difficult than first glance. And there may be one more way it's difficult. Remember the first of the schismatics and scandalmongers we see, Mohammed? Well, guess what? There is a book written in 1265 called The Book of the Ladder of Mohammed. And in this book, written in Old French in 1265, Mohammed goes on a journey across the afterlife, a journey that is very much like comedy. And in the book of the Ladder of Muhammad, written in 1265, Muhammad learns that the punishments of the damned, of those in hell, match their deeds upon earth. This contrapasso, while it is certainly referred to in Aquinas, while it is certainly part of medieval scholastic learning, it is also part of this Islamic tradition in the West. I loved the canto opens with Muhammad and may end with the justification for comedy, which may arise out of a book, the book of the ladder of Muhammad, which Dante may well have known was circulating widely in Dante's day. Here's the thing. I can't prove that this term contrapasso comes from Aquinas. Yes, Aquinas uses it to explain the punishments of hell. He uses this exact term, well, contrapassum, but okay, fine. He uses the term contrapasso, and Dante could indeed get it from Aquinas, but I can't prove that. There is no smoking gun. I can't say, oh, look, here's the moment when Dante read in the Summa Theologica that this is the truth, right? I, I, I know it's there in the Summa. I know it's here in Dante, but I can't prove it the way I could prove a mathematical proof or a chemical proof. I can say it's there, but you know, listen, Dante was on the run. He's in exile. He's in a lot of courts. Uh, a lot of these courts, including Con Grande's courts, involve a lot of really smarty pants people who are talking about very smarty pants things and are in the employ of their lord. There were all kinds of conversations, I'm sure, going around Dante. Somebody could have brought up Aquinas to Dante. Somebody, it's not that he necessarily read it. He could have heard it and been in debate about it with other people. There's no actual smoking gun in which I can point to Aquinas and say, oh, it comes out of here. Many many Dantistas do this kind of logic fault. They say, oh, look, it's an Aquinas. Therefore, oh, look, it's here. No, that's a correlation. That's not a proof. And I can do a similar correlation. Oh, look, the Book of the Ladder of Muhammad claims that the damned suffer like punishments to their sins. And here we have, in fact, in a canto that begins with Muhammad, we have it as the final justification of uttered by Bertrand de Born, a great troubadour poet, a poet who perhaps was a model for Dante's early life, but who became instead a celebrator of chivalry and war, and whose poetry itself may have fomented unrest in exactly the same way that Dante's own poetry could foment unrest. That is a complicated passage. Let me give it one more shot to read it. No funny voices, no nothing, no sound effects. Let me just read you Canto 28, lines 112 through 142, and finish up this unbelievably long episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. 
I stuck around to watch the company, and I saw something which made me afraid to even mention it without further proof. Even so, what bucks me up is conscience, the good compatriot that makes a man brave under the armor of his own truly felt purity. Honestly, I saw, and I still seem to see, a torso without a head coming along just like the others in that sad sack crowd. He held his uncoupled head by its hair, swinging it from his hand like a lantern. The head took one look at us and said, oh me. He had made a lamp out of himself so that they were two in one and one in two. How could this be? Only he who orders it knows. When this one had gotten right up to the foot of the bridge, he raised his arm, carrying the whole head high to make his words unmistakable, which were, Now look at my deadly pain, you there breathing away as you gawk at the dead. See if any other torment is as great as mine, so that you may carry back news of me. Know that I am Bertrand de Bourne who gave the young king the bad counsel. I led the father and son into open rebellion with each other. Ahithophel did no more to Absalom and David with his wicked nudging. Since I divided otherwise joined persons, I carry my own brain divided, alas, from its origin point on this torso. This is how the contrapasso is made manifest in me. That was a crazy episode of the podcast. It's just an episode that we could go on and on about. We have only scratched the surface of this. Bertrand de Bourne, for example, died a Cistercian monk. Does this in some way say something about salvation and it doesn't work if you take orders? That's what happened to Guido de Montefeltro. So is there a Guido de Montefeltro reference running around behind this passage? Honestly, it is so complex, it's hard to even get your brain around it. But we are moving on. In the next episode of this podcast, we're going to go on to Canto 29. We may be slow walking. I think we could sit here forever. I think if I were writing my dissertation on Inferno, I'd be right here. We're not going to write a dissertation. We're going to walk on. Subscribe to this podcast. Rate it. I really would appreciate a good rating. Just, you know, hey, you're doing great. That would be fabulous. Check me out on my website, markscarborough.com. You can drop a comment there. You can get in touch with me there. And otherwise, I will see you back for the very last of the ninth of the evil pouches of fraud on the next Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you then. See you then.